This podcast is made possible in part by the Low Country's Indigo Books, supporting public radio and independent thinking. Ordering and more is available at 843-768-2255. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today are Mabel Owens Clark, who is a native of the upstate, grew up in an area that used to be called Liberia, and she is a fantastic cook, but also an ardent historic preservationist. And Carlton Owen, who is a former founding member of Upstate Forever and is currently chairman of the Greenville County Historic and Natural Resources Trust. And we're going to be talking about the Soapstone Preservation Project around the Soapstone Church. So, Ms. Clark and Carlton, welcome to the journal. Well, thank you, Mr. Walter Eggers, for having us here today. We are just grateful to be here. Well, you've got a very interesting story, and I think it would help our listeners if you would go back and talk about your forebears and the area that we called Liberia. Actually, a few years back, we had Mike Coggershell from Clemson who wrote a book about yes. Liberia, but it's something that not many South Carolinians, black or white, know today. So why don't you start at the beginning of how that came about, because it's all part of your story. First of all, I would like to tell you how Soapstone came about. Okay. First, on, on the grounds there on Liberia Road, the Indians was first the ones that was located there, and they was ran up into ran off the land up into Cherokee. And then after that time, they brought in 600 free slaves, and among the 600 free slaves was my great-grandfather. And he said that he felt that the 600 free slaves needed a, a church. And he could, they cut down some trees and started a church there on the same grounds and named it after that Soapstone Rock. Mm-hmm. And that's where it got the name Soapstone Church. And Soapstone, it's an outgrown crop of that rock on the six acres of land. And the Indians really use that. It's a very soft rock, as you know. Mm-hmm. And they use that uh, rock to make all their artifacts. Oh, okay. So that's how Soapstone Church got started. All right. And as the, um, after the time went on, the free slaves, they had planted their cotton and they pulled all their money together and they bought some lumber. They they got rid of the uh, the brush harbor, mm-hmm. and they built a church. And in 1967, during the Martin Luther King civil rights movements, where people of color would be able to vote, when that era was going on, Soapstone Church was burned down by the Klansmans in 1967. Oh, gosh, but okay. let me just tell you how God just turned things around. Okay, church was burned in 1967. And at that time, my parents gathered that next Sunday with the pastor trying to figure out, okay, what are we going to do from here? And the pastor said, well, I think we're just going to have to disperse and everybody go their own way. The church only has $38 in the count, and we can't build a church back on that. My mother, her name, Lula Majunkins Owens, she jumped up. out. We had a little folding chair. She jumped up out of her seat, and she said, Soapstone Church will be built back. And mm-hmm. and they were just so alarmed, like saying, Miss Owens, how are you going to build a church back? She said, we own this big farm. We got plenty of vegetables. Me and my husband, will go peddling every Saturday selling vegetables and build this church back. So in 1968, my mother held the church that's standing there now open in one year. Wow. One year. Well, so we call it the vegetable church, the vegetable church. <laughs> OK, uh, and that's going to be part of the story, too. But I, I'm not sure if pe- listeners picked up once the enslaved people were freed after the Civil War, mm-hmm. they grew cotton and they bought the land that became Liberia and the land where Soapstone was. They bought it from the white owners. Mm-hmm. And it was a very hard scrambled existence, but it centered around that church. Mm-hmm. There was something like five or six hundred people in that community, right? At that time, yes. Yeah. 
So how many people were living in, in the area in the 1960s? Obviously your family, but some folks had moved off. Well, a lot of people had left the uh, area for better life. Mm -hmm. And as a child, when I was growing up, we had to take off, even though our farm is the next door to the church, but if you didn't get there early, you couldn't get a seat. But in today's world, you could sit anywhere you want to. But during that time, I know a lot of the people had died off, but during my era, it must have been at least about 100 plus that was still there. Mm -hmm. But from what I learned from my parents, when so many left, they um, had a place in Greenville called the Judson Mill. Mm -hmm. And the truck would come through on Liberia Road and it was the guy would be on the back of the truck with a big bullhorn and saying, oh, drop your cotton sacks and we have uh, running water. We have a house in Greenville and you can come and work in the mills. And so many of those people would just drop their sacks and get on this truck and come to Greenville. And next week he would come back again and pick up more. So that's how the area just kind of started to die out. You know, they went to work in the, I guess you call it, um, a cotton plant where they, you know, they manufacture a, fabrics a, yeah, in, in, a, in that area. A, a textile mill. Textile and, mill, yes. And you mentioned they were they were growing cotton, and part of the problem was in that era, cotton prices were were going down, and it was very hard for anybody to make money in in cotton. In fact, in the nineteen twenties, mm -hmm. the state agricultural department said. The the best farmers lost money for every pound of cotton. They, they had put more money into seed and fertilizer than they could get for the finished cotton crop. So the idea of getting a paid a weekly wage and a place to live was attractive to a lot of hard scrabble farmers in South Carolina. You are exactly right on that. If I want to piggyback on what you said, at the time when the prices went down so low, I remember that. Well, a guy would come out and say, well, we're going to pay you not to plant any cotton. Mm -hmm. And they would send them a little small check to supplement mm -hmm. for not planting the cotton because the prices had gone so low. Well, that's that's right. That came about as, as one of the many New Deal laws that were put in to try to get farmers back on their feet. Because if everybody's growing cotton and the price is low, so yes, they were play, paying people not to grow cotton. Exactly. And another reason was cotton's not very good for the land. And mm -hmm. that's part of a conservation programs going on. But that was true in a lot of places in South Carolina and across the South. So folks do want to better themselves. And People abandoned the farms. There was a, an exodus from the farms in South Carolina mm -hmm. in the 1920s and 30s. And obviously that had an impact on the community called Liberia. Yes, it did. Very much so. Okay, so your mother says, we're going to rebuild this church. Your mother and father sold vegetables. Do they have a vegetable stand? Or? No, they. we would... Um, on a Friday, we would just go and load up the truck with the, what green beans, whatever vegetables that was there. Okay. I mean, it'd be filled to the rim. Okay. And they would leave from Pickens, start selling vegetables, ringing on doorbells, from Pickens to Marietta, Travel Rest, all the way to Greenville. All day Saturday to get back home about 7 o'clock that evening. And... Let me just tell you, the pastor, when my mother said, you know, we're going to build a church back, he said, well, Miss Owens, if you can sell enough vegetables to buy some cinder blocks, I know how to lay cinder blocks. And mother says, well, you show up here on Tuesday because we're going to on Monday, we're going to go to the to the place where they sell the cinder blocks and they will be here every Tuesday. That pastor would show up with however many cinder blocks that they had there. And also, when my mother was on that peddling route, she carried a little book with her, and she was a very soft-spoken lady. She would say to her customers, my church been burned, and uh, could you, she'd take her little book out, and she said, "If could you just help me just a little bit to help me buy some cinder blocks to build my church back? And she had this word which I never understood, but it's an old word. If they didn't if they didn't have any money to help her, 
She said, oh, much obliged. As I got older, I asked my mother, what does that word really mean? What, what are you saying to the people? She was saying, it's okay. Thank you anyway. So you take me back to my grandparents. My grandfather used to hurt. I'm much obliged. Yes, yeah, exactly. Much obliged. Yeah. So eventually the church was built within a year, right? One year. One year. Mm-hmm. You say the congregation has dwindled in size, and how large is it now? Oh, goodness. we between eight to 12 members. Okay. Do you pay a pastor now, or? It's just pretty much just a love offering, you know, to maintain for gas and like that. Okay. But, and again, this is a story. I'm glad we can focus on this because this is a story that a lot of small areas, rural areas in South Carolina are, are, are facing. But you've got a devotion to this church. You made a promise to your mother on her deathbed, did you not? Yes. My mother, she she was blessed to live to be 104 years old. And on her deathbed, she called me. It was on a early morning, and I used and I um, pretty much moved in there at the last two or three years. Mm-hmm. You know, make sure I take care of my mom and my dad. So, I went into the room and I said, "Mom, what would you like for breakfast today?" She says, "I don't want anything to eat today." Oh, I said, "This is different." She says, I'm getting ready to go home to sleep in Jesus' arms, but I have two favors I need from you before I leave this earth. I said, Mom, you're not going anywhere. She said, my time is up. Me and God has had this talk. And she put two fingers up in the air, and she said, this one here, I want you to go to Greenville, get your oldest brother who's paralyzed, and he's just only able to drive a little scooter. I want you to bring him home to the family house, and I want you to take care of him till God sent him home to me. She said, that's number two. Now, listen to this one, she says. Do not let the church at Soapstone Church close. Your great-grandfather was the founder of that church. I want you to carry out that legacy. I want you to find some means to keep the church, the, the doors of that church open. Do not let the doors close. At that point, she asked me, she said, give me, my, give me your hand. And she said, look me in my eye. And she squeezed my hand so tight. And she said, will you keep those two promises? I said, yes, ma'am. And three days later, Mr. Edgar, the angels swarmed around her bed, and she went home. Oh, what a... Oh, that's, that's, that's a very touching story. Yeah. And so in order to fulfill your promise to your mother and to raise money for the church, you decided to <laughs> begin to feed a good portion of the upstate, right? <laughs> upstate and low country, out of state. I mean, um, people just started coming from everywhere. I had people come for us, Florida, Atlanta, Virginia. Uh, all uh, over. All right. Now, do you do this? E- is this every week or once a month? Oh, I did it once a month. Every third Saturday of the month, I held a major fish fry there. Okay. And uh, what kind of fish are you frying? Oh, flounder, the best. So you got to get that from the low country. Yes. Of course. Of course. So, yes. So, so you get flounder, you fry your fish over an open Flame, you know. No, uh, we have a commercial uh, kitchen there. Um, I obtained my safe serve license. Okay. And uh, I am a chef, and that's how I ended up in the uh, Eating Well magazine that helped the church out so greatly. I don't want to get off course from you. I guess we'll talk about that later. I started the fish fry. The first one, we had 25 people. I went to the pastor and said, this is not working. So we had to end up, we had a lot of food left. We had to end up give us a, it's a place on Liberry Road called Miracle Hill, where, they had, you know, where it housed children. Mm-hmm. And so we had to take a lot of food there. So, so some of the children, it was funny. They said, we hope you don't have many people when you do the next fish fry, because <laughs> they were so happy to get, you know, to get the good food. Yeah. So 
pastor said, well, let's try it again. We tried it the next time we had 75. So it has grown from 75 to we up over 1,000 people. 1,000 people? In that one day. Oh. The last one when we did, I think we ended up at 1,300. And I fed every one of them. All right. Are you do are you doing this all by yourself, or you got somebody help you? You're a chef. You got some a sous chef or two helping you with this. <laughs> well, um, how it goes? We I have some people to come and help do prep work, like for the collard greens and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Do the prep work, and once they get everything prepped. I do the. I'm I'm the chef. I I prepare the food, and I have people that come in on that Saturday as servers that help with the serving. And I do have one guy on that particular day that uh, just fried the fish all day long. Okay. But in terms of all the other amenities that's on the hot bar, I prepare those. Well, you you mentioned collards, and you also have famous mac and cheese, right? Oh yes. Oh, yes. Um, the menu can consist of, uh, I can pretty much go down the line, uh, fish, and we always have chicken. And then we got you got your collard greens, and then you got your corn, and you got your uh, green beans and speck of butter beans, uh, tomato casserole, mac and cheese, first candied yams, hot corn muffins. Oh, just loads of variety of desserts. And you do all of that? I don't do all the desserts. Okay. I, I'm I'm really not fond of cooking desserts. It's okay. it's not one of my forte. So you you have you but the, everything else the everything toma- else. tomato casserole and mm. and that kind of thing. Yes. Folks, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Mabel Owens-Clark and Carlton Owen about the Soapstone Church and its preservation in the upcountry. So let's bring Carlton into the conversation, and how has your organization become involved with Soapstone? Well, a couple of things, Dr. Edgar. Number one, um, my wife had been on to me for several years to go up to Soapstone and have the fish fry on a Saturday. And I was this was in the days when I traveled every week by air. And I said, I don't want to spend my Saturday driving all the way up to Pickens County to, to have a fish fry <laughs> lunch. I need to, need to rest. Well, I finally broke down. We went up and had lunch one day and met Mabel. And it's been a love affair. We, we claim each other as cousins. And learned more about the church, and it just so happened in 2020 when Brenda and I got involved that the church had uh, the bank called the mortgage on the property from an addition they had done on the church several years before mm-hmm. and gave them, I think, about 90 days to pay off $50,000. Mm-hmm. And that touched my heart. And so Brenda and I got with some of our friends, and we helped the church raise some of that money to pay off that mortgage. That was accomplished, but the, the church was still under threat because it sits on a beautiful knoll looking up at Table Rock Mountain. And as you know about the upstate, oh, people gosh. are moving to that beautiful country. The view, is, the mountain yeah, view. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and yes, the, it was tough farming and the, the soils were degraded. But if you want a mountain home or a beautiful vista, that's where you go. Yeah. And so um, having been a founder, uh, original board member of Upstate Forever, the group got to talking with Mabel and the pastor about how can we protect the church from that next threat, not just debt, which was paid off, but how how can we ensure that the property will always be there to protect the historical side of that story of those freed slaves that eked out a living there. And so Upstate Forever worked with the church, and I was sort of a technical advisor to the church leadership, to Mabel and Pastor Trower, on the terms of that. And we were very blessed that the uh, you, you do an appraisal on the property. What's the property's value without the easement? What's the value of it with the easement? And the difference between those two numbers, uh, you can actually pay the landowner for that. And in this case, we were very blessed that the South Carolina Conservation Bank, mm-hmm. another group called Upstate Land Conservation Fund, which is just a group of private citizens that care about conservation, came together. And then a couple of individuals that I won't mention for fear of embarrassing them, uh, paid a total of $75,000 to the church for that conservation easement. Now, that money was something the church could use for any purpose, uh, and they had to use it for a lot of purposes to maintain that building and, and other things. So we now have a perpetual conservation easement on that site that should the church ever close, 
will ensure that the one-room schoolhouse that's there, that Mabel went to school in, the church itself, the slave cemetery that's there, that view up on the Table Rock Mountain are protected in perpetuity. Well, that in itself is a wonderful part of the story because all too often in rural areas, whether it's the view of the upstate of the mountains or you're on uh, a deep water creek in the low country or one of the sea islands, mm-hmm. everybody wants to be there. And so you find family homes disappear. Folks go to court and they somehow get their, get their hands on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think this is a this is an incredible, an incredible story. Walter, it's a multi-chapter story, if you would. You know, Mabel spent those twenty-two years doing the fish fries to keep the church doors open. Then we had another couple of years that it took to, after paying off the mortgage, to get the easement in place. Now we formed the Soapstone Preservation Endowment, which is an independent nonprofit to raise funds to deal with the protection of the historic side of that story so that that story of freed slaves uh, building on their faith will never be lost to South Carolina and its citizens. Wonderful. Now, you mentioned almost in passing the one-room schoolhouse that's Mm -hmm. on this property. That is a historic structure. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about that. You you went there, but describe it for our listeners. It's it's one room, wood wood frame? Yes. I had the opportunity to go to that one-room school, and I really feel it was the best thing that could really happen to me because that's where I got my start in terms of education. And let me just express to you that going to that one-room school, when I first, where we lived next door to the church, I thought I'm going in the first grade because she teached the first grade first that I could just leave and run on back home. <laughs> so I got up to leave. She said, where are you going? I'm going home. You, you teach in second grade. Sit down. Well, you got to stay till school is over. So... Tuck my seat, and I sit there. But you know what? When you get got to the second grade, I had to listen to all that. I already knew what was going to happen in second grade, the third grade. So it was an advantage to me, and uh, I I just loved it. And it was a breeze. Well, see what you're saying that most people don't realize. A one-room schoolhouse is all grades were taught in that school. And in South Carolina at the time, and I believe this is what it, what I remember from the Education Act is up through sixth grade was was required, but beyond sixth grade, they expected kids were going to go work in the mills or work in the fields or what have you. Mm-hmm. So, did you go through all grades higher than six in that school? I went to the fifth grade there, and the government came and closed that one room school, and we had to. Um, that was in the nineteen early nineteen fifties, wasn't it? Yes. All right. That was the consolidation movement. Uh, I, Carlton, I bet you could go back and find that that one room school was a separate school district. Mm-hmm. South Carolina had over a thousand school districts, mm-hmm. many of them one school district, and most of them were segregated. Mm-hmm. That's true. So. You know, historically, the consolidation, they went from over a 1,000 districts to 100 school districts. And, of course, they've continued to consolidate. So once the school was closed, where did you go to school after that? First, I would like to say when um, they came out, there was someone from the school departments and Pickens came. and The State the, Department of Education. Yes, yeah. it met with my mother and expressed to her that the school was going to be closed and within two weeks that he was going to be bringing books and that we have to teach, the, the, you know, be do homeschooling. And my mother expressed to him, I run this big farm. I'm, I can't do homeschooling. My children deserve an education just like everybody else's children do. And um, I am not going to—don't bring the books. That's what she told him. So the next day, that was on a Friday when he was there, so that Monday my mom got dead. She didn't drive to drive her to Pickens to speak to the superintendent. And the superintendent has said, well, this is what has happened, and this is what—you know, we got the artists from the government, and so this is what we got to go along with. So it had a little index card laying there, and my mother asked him to write down the name for where the school headquarters in Columbia. 
And so he asked her, why do you want that? Because I need to, I need to go there. So he wrote the name, address, and everything down. And my mother, they left there. So she told my dad, said, listen, we got to go to Columbia. So my father like, oh, no, no. Uh, this old raggedy truck, we'll never make it there. My mother's name was Lulu, but he could never say, I don't know if he just was a joke, but he always called her Lou. Lou, we can't, how are we going to get there? She said, we'll stop at every gas station and ask, but I'm going down there. She came, met, with, made it here through some kind of way, and left orders for us to do all the the home, you know, chores with feeding up, you know, mm -hmm. the chickens and getting everything ready in case they didn't get back in time. So now it's 7 o'clock in the evening. They haven't made it back. So now we're getting nervous what happened. So finally, I think about 8 o'clock, we, we hear the old truck. It had a bad muff on it. And we said, that come <laughs> mom and dad. We got so happy. So we all gathered around the truck. Mama, are we going to be going to school? Are we going to be going to school? She said, I got, they're going to put a school bus on, and you're going to be picked up. You're going to be bused to downtown Pickens. And the rest of you are going to be busted easily, the ones that was in higher grade than me. Mm -hmm. And so my mother got us a school bus, and we went to school. Now, <laughs> now see, that, I don't know how. Is that schoolhouse open for historic interpretation, or is it just? That's uh, one of our first projects that the endowment is going to take on, Walter. We are talking with a contractor in the upstate about adopting it as a project with our preservation board mm -hmm. because it— um, you know, the the Rosenwald schools that mm -hmm. were created all over the South by the Jewish family out of New York. Mm -hmm. We're not sure that this school was actually a Rosenwald, but if not, it is a copy and of the same era. And what we want to do is restore it. it. It looks beautiful from the outside, but it needs a good bit of work. And so that's our first project we'll be taking on. And then the hope is we could open it up maybe a, a couple of mornings a week mm -hmm. as a tourist stop and uh, furnish it with school, uh, the materials very equivalent to the era that Mabel was in there. And so that is a project we're launching right now. Okay. And I bet it had a pot-bellied stove. It's the stove is still in there. Okay. Uh, no running water. No running water. No no bathroom. We had outhouses. Okay. And we had to go down to the spring to bring water up for the teacher to cook our lunch. And that was a long walk down that hill <laughs> to the spring. Well, in terms of historic preservation, Carlton, small rooms, one-room schools like this dotted rural South Carolina— yes. The fact that it still exists makes it a preservation treasure to tell not only the story of this community, but to let people from the big city schools find out what it was like at the turn of the last century. Kids did go to still go into one room schools in South Carolina in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. But this is someone who experienced it. And I think that's a story that needs to be told. Well, and that part of it is that generation is passing by. And if we don't claim that history now and make sure that we can share it with the future, um, that there'd be an enormous loss to society. Well, you're, you're speaking our heart and our belief that that will put the library community back on the map, if you will, from the standpoint of the church, because it was rebuilt in 68 is not a historic structure. It's a historic story, mm -hmm. but that one-room schoolhouse is the original schoolhouse. And so uh, op reopening it, furnishing it to the era, uh, I think will open a lot of eyes of what, how blessed we are today to sit in air-conditioned rooms and uh, <laughs> running water in bathrooms right down the hall, uh, as opposed to what Mabel and her peers had to put up with as children, on top of trying to learn. Uh, having to cook your own food right there, having mm -hmm. to do your own cleaning, having out uh, outhouses as your only toilet facilities. When did y'all get electricity up there? It was probably there by the time you were growing up. You had it not in the schoolhouse necessarily, but did your family have electricity by that? When you were growing up? No. Growing up from a child in my house, we got electricity probably, I must have been about in the 10th grade. Okay. But that's because we had dirt roads. I mean, we, uh, I mean, everything was still country with me growing up. Outhouse, even at our house, mm -hmm. you know, in my home where we grew up. And, um, 
it would just, and then we, I was sharing with uh, Carlton coming down the road, we had to use, you know, kerosene mm-hmm. lamps okay. to study our lesson by night. Okay. I won't ask you for your age, but you, you were growing up in the 1940s and 1950s? In the 40s. In the 40s. Okay. Yes. See, we're about the same age. That's <laughs> uh, and folks need to understand that in rural South Carolina and the rural South in general, electrification started in the 1930s, but it didn't really get a lot of places till the 1950s. Because mm-hmm. part of that was, you know, it costs money to run a power line in from the main line and that mm-hmm. somebody's got to pay for it. Exactly. Eventually, rural electrification, the co-ops, you're probably on a co-op up there, or you were. Yes. That's that's Ridge. that's what that's what made the difference. The regional co-ops in South Carolina that brought electricity to uh, what the late Lewis Jones, who taught at Walford, said the dark ages in South Carolina. And just think of what all of that brought in terms of cooking, washing, all of that. That you grew up doing it by hand. I bet you had a scrub board, too, with a wash tub, right? We did. And my mother used to make uh, the soap to wash the clothes in. Out of, you know, out of Red Devil Eye, they call it. And they put it in the old black wash pot. And um, she would just cut out bars. But I tell you, ooh, that was some cleaning soap. Well, uh, yeah, uh, it might take a couple of layers of skin. <laughs> <laughs> I was getting ready to say that. <laughs> I mean, you know. Uh, the, but you know what I learned about it? Uh, it was something my mother came up with. She would um, send us up to the church to get a couple of little small pebbles of the soapstone rock. And she would put that in the big old black wash pot. And that would be, that soap would come out in a liquid form. Oh, okay. And then when she didn't put that in there, it would be, she would make up, it would be hard. And that's what she cut out with bars of soap for, you know, taking baths and things. Okay. I don't know. I can't explain the chemistry there, but it worked. (laughs) So I want to move to your cooking and the magazine story Mm -hmm. about you. What's your favorite recipe or your favorite food? And did they feature it right in the in the article? Yes, I think they did very well with you know featuring the. Um, may, they may have changed one a little thing, one or two little things there, but nothing extreme. But you mean they fiddled with your recipes? Just a little bit, not not uh, that much. They they want to add some jalapeno to something in there. Uh, I don't know where they came up with that, but it, that's okay to have a little heat. Uh, a little heat never hurts food. But uh, how it came about with the Eating Well magazine, someone had visited the uh, fish fry and had talked to me about the story of the $50,000 $50, that was out there. And she went back and told the owner of the Eating Well magazine said, I want you to see if you can help Mabel. So I met this wonderful lady. And um, so he called me and said to me, Mabel, uh, one of your clients is back here in New York and asked me to give you a call and said, you having some problems trying to raise some money. And I think that we, Edenwell Magazine can be of help to the Soapstone Church. But I'll have to send in my... Uh, person that could treat food for all over the country would come in, but it's, this is what the uh, limitations are. You have to prepare six dishes from 9 to 3 o'clock. No pre-prep, anything. Everything will be, we'll send the cameramen's in, we'll watch from New York, we'll watch every procedure that you're doing. Now, if you can do that, this magazine goes internationally. And you will see money coming in from places you never even dreamed of. So I t- said, you think you could do it? I said, send her on. <laughs> so she arrived, and like, it, like as uh, Carlton said earlier, the church is really out in the country. So she got on Punkintown Highway, and she called me, and she said, I can't be coming to the right place. I must be lost. It, it's no way that I have ever critiqued any food driving this far. She was, you know, from the Greenville Airport. And so she got in that Punkatown Highway. I said, well, just keep coming. You're on the right road. 
So she said, where are you cooking the fish? Outside? You got a, a, a outside? I said, no, I have a commercial kitchen. So when she got there, she was blown away. That she said, wow, I didn't expect this when I was driving on this country road. So she said, um, do I need to go over the orders of what my boss told you? I said, sure, you can tell me if you like to. She said, you got from nine to three. You think you can handle it? I said, let's get in the kitchen and get started. I said, the cameraman's already beat you here. They all set up and everything. So let's let's get going. So by one o'clock, I was finished with all six dishes. Okay. And what were the six dishes that you had to prepare? Oh, you think I remember? (laughs) (laughs) I would expect you to remember. (laughs) Okay. It was collard greens. We did cream corn. We did a tomato casserole, fish, or had be mac and cheese, and we did it. It was a speck of butter bean or black eyed peas. Okay. And and oh, candied yams was on there, so it might not be in the black. We I did candied yams. Okay, so you said it did not include prep time, or did include the preparation? No, you got to do the prep. As as for each meal. Okay, so if you were doing butter beans, were you shelling those beans, or did, or did you already have bottom already shelled? Well, the butter beans they allowed me to, you know, have those. But okay. for the collard greens, everything had to be shopped, <laughs> and the stem pulled out. They had to see all that. Okay. So, but um, I finished so fast, so the boss. She So she's on her laptop. She's sending everything back to New York. So when she said, well, we finished. We're going to have to wait about 45 minutes for my boss to call and see if you approve. Because she was tasting the food and letting them know. So I was hoping that everything she was tasting was okay. So now her phone rang. 45 minutes didn't even go. The boss said, tell her she's in. He said, that little short girl, she'd know her way through a kitchen. Said, boy, she was moving. (laughs) So he said, I need her up here in New York because he has six restaurants there. But anyway, you want to hear something really cute. Now we finish, and the the lady that was critiquing the food, she uh, was still there. Don't close the laptops. The cameraman's gone. Everybody's gone. And she said to me, would you like for me to help you uh, clean the kitchen? This lady critiqued food for all over the world. So I know this is not something that she does. And I said, it hit me. I said, oh, would you like to, you flying back out tonight? She said, no. I said, would you like to take something with you? She jumped up. She grabbed two to-go boxes. And she said, oh, the food was so good. I'm t- I'm, I'm taking two boxes. <laughs> and she she was just, just, just going after the food. And she took one, she kept one frozen at the hotel, I guess, must, and she took it back to her boss in, uh, in New York. New York. And after that, it's been history. He's been ringing my phone, wanting me to say, you got to come to New York. Can't do what, that. What year was this? You... 19. In 2020. 20. Mm-hmm. The, the article appeared in September 2020. 2020. So it was it was done earlier in the year, right? Uh, it was probably done two months before okay. they published it. Okay. Mm-hmm. But let me just tell you, uh, as a result of them giving me the opportunity to be featured in this magazine. My first call came in at 1.30 at night from London. They had read the magazine, and she looked and she said to me, I want to speak to Mabel. And she had such a heavy dialect. She couldn't say Mabel. She was saying Mabel. So that was fine. I'll answer to whatever. She said to me, oh, Mabel? She said, the veins in your hands... I saw the picture of you in the magazine. You done worked so hard. And she said, me and my husband, we, we have lots of money. We want to help you. And she said, give me the address. Is this address right, what I'm saying to you? I said, yes, ma'am. 296 Liberia Road. She said, watch your mailbox. Within two weeks, I received a check from that lady for $10,000 oh. from London. Never even met her. Well, and then the next call I got from was from Belgium. People read the story in the magazine, and they was concerned about helping the church. 
and that came a check for five thousand. So this magazine has just even people in, you know, here in the United States read it, and then um, Andy Douglas helped me get a GoFundMe started to pay this off because the investors was rushing me so fast, coming in with blueprints and things, and was and it was going to. Uh, you know, want to push the church over the schoolhouse and they had it on uh, the blueprint showing 42 units going in there. So the, the bank was really hoping you were not, you were not going to make it, right? Well, I don't know if it's so much the bank. I don't know how the investors got the word that uh, we were in debt. It was coming from Florida and uh, Virginia and different places. But you had to pay that mortgage off. Otherwise, they were somebody was going to put some condos on your land, right? Well, the church would have been pushed over on December the seventh. That was the time frame we had to raise the money, but we raised the money way before that time. Um, in October, October, we had the fifty thousand paid off. Folks, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Mabel Owens-Clark and Carlton Owen about the Soapstone Church and its preservation in the upcountry. So, Carlton, let's, let's turn to you now because we've gotten Mabel's story, your organization, and what, it, what it's going to do to make sure that it stays there. Well, and Upstate Forever will be the perpetual monitor of the conservation easement but the soapstone preservation endowment will be the one that focuses on trying to keep the campus, if you will, the buildings and the grounds in a condition. And what we want to do is set it up just as we talked about a little bit earlier, where people can come and experience some of that history of what's gone on on that site for over 150 years. So already the uh, some Clemson students work with Mabel and some others to clear the the uh, slave cemetery, and so there's some markers out there that tell that little piece of history. Uh, there will be a new historical marker uh, erected over the next couple of months that will talk about the original site for Soapstone Church. We want to uh, reinvigorate and get the school open where it can be part of that story. And what we want to do, Walter, long term is tie it in with the museum in Charleston, uh, other things in the upstate that help tell that story. Mabel mentioned that the original inhabitants were Native Americans, and we know much of that story. What's interesting is how little of the story we know of the generations that came after, especially the emancipated slaves that had to eke out a living, and we didn't have government programs that were helping at that time. So the Soapstone Preservation Endowment will be about one thing, and that's maintaining that property and the historic side of that story of what they eked out on that hillside. Well, when you say the Charleston Museum, I assume you're talking about the International African American Museum, which will soon be opening. Yes. And we've already had some connection with some folks there uh, because they want to tell that story, not just of the uh, people coming into the port there as slaves, but how that history played out over time. And so you see now a church that is much smaller than it was in the past, obviously, but there's still an important story to be told. Well, and the fact of that African-American community that called itself Liberia, it's something that people don't usually associate African-American history with the upstate. They think this is a low country Mm -hmm. phenomenon. But I want to just mention one thing. When you were talking about this woman coming in from New York and, you know, Driving, where am I going? Where am I? Where am I going? <laughs> well, I can tell you, rural Greenville and Pickens counties are no longer off the map. Uh, they've been discovered by people that are coming up for the beauty of the mountains. So tourism is huge in the upstate, but also the second and third home development is really taking over. And it's one of the things that I'm working on with the Greenville County Historic and Natural Resources Trust. Obviously, I wish we could extend the boundary a little bit and pick up Soapstone Church in that little corner of Pickens County. But it's critical that we protect some of these historic sites and some of these open spaces that are important to the quality of water we have, the clean air, recreational opportunity, which we saw uh, in spades in the pandemic. People needed to get out, and nature was the best place to get out, to get away from the threat of uh, catching COVID. 
And so we're working very hard to protect those areas. So historic places like Soapstone Church, hopefully there will be trails, if you will, uh, travel trails where you can say uh, that would be tied into the museum. If you're up in these counties, these are the sites you can go to, and this is what you'll experience. Okay. I would like to reference the article for in Eating Well one more time, and it was the September 2020 issue. If folks, folks can go online now and look at it, and mainly because it's got Mabel's six recipes in here. You've got recipe for zucchini bread. You've got her mac and cheese, steam-baked summer squash, oh, mm-hmm. stewed lima beans, collard greens, fried flounder. It's it's all there. Mm-hmm. And you have an international audience using your recipes. Exactly. When you were in that one-room schoolhouse, could you have ever imagined something like that happening? Well... I would have to kind of say yes, because I've always been a, an outgoing person and always d- done a lot of research and always kind of had a dream of big things happening there. Yeah, they were, you dreamed. My dream. Your dream. And you've lived your dream. Yes. And you've made a difference not just locally, but beyond that, by helping to preserve this story. Your dream has had an impact on hundreds of people, on their eating habits, at least 1,300 from your, <laughs> the last, no, seriously, all the years you fed people, and you were telling them a story the same time you were feeding them. Exactly. And, you know, with the, uh, during the pandemic, I think this really stands out and stands out so deeply in my heart. I think it sits at the core of my heart, really. My doorbells start going off people in the neighborhood because right now the Owens is the only black family that's left on Liberia Road. The rest is 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 completely a white community. So in saying that, my doorbell was going off and parents was coming to Mabel, we need your help. My you know, my daughter, my son, they're not doing good, they're so far behind in academically, and we just don't know what to do. And I gave it some thought. I said, okay, we I'm not doing the fish fry there anymore. I can open up a school. So what I did, got in my car, I knew all the, I'm pretty much the matriarch for that community. Okay. And I got in my car and I went, I started ringing doorbells. Every teacher I knew that had retired, I said, you need to come back to work. You need to come out of retirement. I need you at Soapstone. So we folded up all the tables. I went to the uh, school department. They were able to give all the students, you know, Wi-Fi, you know, laptops Mm -hmm. and everything that we needed. And only thing they said, well, you know, Mabel, if you can come up with some way to provide food so the students could have a lunch. lunch." I said, that's not a problem. So we started the class and things was going well, Walter. And my phone rung at home for one of the teachers and said, Mabel, you need to come up here. Said the twins, I got problem with the twins. So being two minutes from the church, I got there and she says, I don't know what to do with the twins. They're in the eighth grade. They don't know seven and seven is 14. And I don't know how to keep them out here among the other students that's going forward. And I gave her some thought, Walter. Me being in a one-room school, I guess I went back and grabbed some of that. Mm-hmm. And I said to her, i tell you what we're going to do. I said, I'm going to ask the pastor for permission to use his office. We're going to bring those two girls out. And we're going to, you're going to, I'm going to let you have class right in here. We're going to make this. So if we try to bring them up from ground level in front of those other students, it's going to be some, you know, they're going to feel very uncomfortable. So we got them in there. I said, we're going to have to start from, the get, we're going to get some first grade book. I got to school to send me some books all the way up to the grade they were in. And we started there, and they started really just, you know, grasping. Mm-hmm. But to make this story short, this December, my doorbell rang, went off. Now they're back in public school. Mm-hmm. Those two girls, those two little twins came and showed me their report cards. They're making A's and B's. 
Wonderful. Now, that's what stands out with me at Soapstone. Mm. A mind is a terrible thing to lose. If I could, you know, by the fact we, but Soapstone was able to save those two girls. Well, you saved those two literally, but how many, how many people out there, you have no idea you probably had an impact on mm. that others could, could dream and see what could be accomplished. Mm-hmm. I hate to do this, but Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign. Uh, <laughs> there it is. First, I'm going to let Carlton, but I'm going to let you have the last word for our listeners before we sign off. So, Carlton? Walter, I want to thank you for letting us share a little of Mabel's story. To me, it's a story of uh, healing in America. Uh, a black woman who grew up in rural Pickens County went off to Boston for several years, came home to take care of her family, and loves everybody. And it's been just a joy to work with her on the Soap Zone story. Okay. And Mabel, last word from you. Walter, it has been a pleasure to meet you. And I'm just thankful for this opportunity to be on your show. I'm okay. grateful. All right. Mabel Owens Clark and Carlton Owen. Thank you both for being with us today on The Journey. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. Mabel Owens-Clark is not only a great cook, she's a fabulous storyteller. The story of the Soapstone Church, the Liberia community, founded by ex-slaves, its growth and its development, and its struggle to preserve this church into the 21st century is a fascinating and often overlooked part of our history. But it is an important part of South Carolina history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.